1: When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash cyber. DDoS activity during the Hamas Israeli war. An insurance firm suffers a cyber incident. Recent arrests in cybercrime sweeps. Ukrainian hacktivist auxiliaries compromise customer data at Russia's Alpha Bank. How long does it take to read the fine print? Microsoft's Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Newper Davis about building secure tech from the start. Our guest is Antonio Sanchez of Fortra on the challenges of having too many tools. And hey, Marion, don't let the bed bugs bite. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire Intel briefing for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Cloudflare has published an overview of distributed denial-of-service attacks during the Hamas-Israeli war. Attacks against Israeli targets dwarfed attacks against Palestinian websites by a factor of 10. The firm's observations showed negligible DDoS activity against Israeli sites in the weeks preceding the war, but with a sharp spike on the morning of October 7th, when Hamas began its attacks. That activity peaked on October 8th, falling off until another surge on the 20th. The initial attacks targeted websites that provided critical information and alerts to civilians on rocket attacks. Since then, the attacks have concentrated on news and media sites, with some 56% of DDoS operations targeting these. Cloudflare sees that pattern of target selection as representing an emerging style of hybrid war. The firm observed... We saw the same trends when Russia attacked Ukraine. Ukrainian media and broadcasting websites were highly targeted. The war on the ground is often accompanied by cyber attacks on websites that provide crucial information for civilians. After news media in frequency of targeting came the software sector at 34%, followed by financial services with government administration websites placing fourth. DDoS against Palestinian sites also surged after Hamas's initial attacks, although not nearly with the volume that was directed against Israeli sites. In this case, however, the most targeted sector was financial services, with almost 76% of attacks directed against banks. The internet industry came in second, sustaining 24% of DDoS activity. Media production websites came in a very distant third with less than a percentage point. So, again, DDoS and defacement of vulnerable websites seems to have become the defining elements of wartime hacktivism. We're going to take a moment to look at some high-profile arrests of alleged cybercriminals around the world. The Associated Press reports that China's Ministry of Public Security has brought back several thousand of the country's citizens who were working for Chinese cybercriminal syndicates in Myanmar. Myanmar. Many of those brought to book were forced to work for the gangs, and it's unclear how they'll be dealt with by the Chinese justice system. According to The Independent, Singapore have arrested 12 people between the ages of 17 and 40 for alleged involvement in social media scams. The Spanish National Police have arrested 34 suspected members of a cybercriminal operation that ran a wide variety of scams, Bleeping Computer reports that 16 raids across five cities led to the seizure of firearms and hand weapons, four high-end cars, 80,000 euros in cash, and computers hosting a database with information on 4 million people. The Register reports that a 31-year-old Moldovan man who allegedly ran the cybercriminal marketplace E-Root has been extradited from the UK to the US to stand trial for charges of Conspiracy to Commit Access Device and Computer Fraud, Wire Fraud Conspiracy, Money Laundering Conspiracy, Access Device Fraud, and Computer Fraud. And finally, Europol has released details of that international operation that disrupted the Ragnar Locker ransomware gang, Europol says. In an action carried out between the 16th and 20th of October, searches were conducted in Czechia, Spain, and Latvia. The key target of this malicious ransomware strain was arrested in Paris, France on the 16th of October, and his home in Czechia was searched. Five suspects were interviewed in Spain and Latvia in the following days. At the end of the action week, the main perpetrator, suspected of being a developer of the Ragnar Group, has been brought in front of the examining magistrates of the Paris Judicial Court. The ransomware's infrastructure was also seized in the Netherlands, Germany, and Sweden, and the associated data leak website on tour was taken down in Sweden. TASS says it never happened, but apparently, no, it actually did. Alpha Bank, Russia's largest private bank, was hit by Ukrainian hacktivist auxiliaries working in cooperation with the SBU. The record confirmed the attack with the SBU. Alpha Bank is controlled by oligarch Mikhail Fridman himself under U.S. and E.U. sanctions in connection with his role in Russia's war economy, the SBU sees such hacktivism as a contribution to its intelligence collection effort. Do you read all those EULAs, all those privacy policies that pop up all around you? Well, don't tell anyone, but not all of us do either. It turns out there is a kind of rationality on your side, dear listener, NordVPN sent us a study this morning in which they calculated how much time it would take the regular Joe, the ordinary Jane, to read all that stuff. After a pious bow in the direction of knowing what you've agreed to, NordVPN says, the average privacy policy in the U.S. consists of 6,938 words. A person reads approximately 238 words per minute, which means it would take a little over 29 minutes to read an average privacy policy. So, if you read the privacy policy of the 20 most visited U.S. websites, that would take you about nine hours. If you read the policies of the 98 or so sites the average person visits in a month, that would take you a full work week. The American philosopher Tom Waits once sang, The large print giveth, the small print taketh away. A lot of what it takes away is time. And finally, were you a little baffled by the recent furor over Parisian bedbugs? Our European desk was. Come on, they said. Worrying about a few bugs is the kind of thing you'd expect from Les Anglo Saxons, not from worldly Parisians. It turns out that there's a story behind the story the recent overreaction in France and elsewhere to reports of a bedbug infestation may in significant part be due to the planting and amplification of bogus news stories by Russian trolls. The Telegraph reports that French intelligence services have traced the craze to Russian doppelganger trolling. Fake articles that misrepresented themselves as having been prepared by trusted news outlets were circulated in social media. Case zero of this cognitive infestation seems to have been a bogus article said to have appeared in the regional newspaper Le Montaigne, which claimed falsely that the bugs were surging because the French government's embargo on Russian chemical imports had deprived France of effective pesticides. Other phony articles of similar nature were misattributed to the left-wing paper Libération and the right-wing paper Le Figaro. They're all forgeries and hokum. The bedbugs were never a big deal, and in any case, they were around long before France imposed any wartime embargoes on Russia. It's Russian disinformation. The campaign seems to have been opportunistic. The trolls saw some stories about bedbugs and decided to pick up the meme and run for daylight. So the bedbugs have gone to war. Coming up after the break, Microsoft's Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Newper Davis about building secure tech from the start. Our guest is Antonio Sanchez from Fortra on the challenges of having too many tools. Stick around. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. It's a common refrain to hear CISOs lamenting the number of security tools they've accumulated over time, and the complexity that means they have to manage. Antonio Sanchez is principal cybersecurity evangelist at Fortra, and I spoke with him about the challenges enterprises face when they've got too many tools. Tool
2: complexity is definitely one of the top issues that we hear from CISOs. They get into this predicament because it seems like, I don't know, every year, maybe every couple years, there's a new... Attack vector or a new vector that's out there that maybe wasn't used before for whatever reason in the IT industry, and now it's being used. And whenever something new is being used or leveraged by the IT industry, typically the criminal actors, the bad actors, figure out that they can also leverage whatever the new technology is, the new innovation is to be able to exploit it for their own nefarious purposes. Um, the cloud is a great example of that. Ten years ago, actually longer than that, but once upon a time, the world was entirely on-premise. You had your servers in a server closet, you had your storage uh, space in a storage closet. You know things like iSCSI disks um, and fiber channel disks, and all of that stuff lived in you know behind four walls in a in a data center. Maybe it got replicated somewhere else. And now with the rise of the cloud over the past several years. A lot of that stuff doesn't live inside those four walls. It lives in somebody else's four walls. And so it's a new footprint that is now available for the IT industry, but it's also available for the bad guys, the bad actors, the criminal actors to be able to exploit as well. So for every new innovation that's out there, there's a new attack vector. For every new attack vector, there's a new tool um, and for every tool that you, uh, that you purchase or an organization purchases to address that new attack vector, you end up with tons of tools. In fact, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for us to hear organizations with uh, 50, 60, 70, even over 100 tools, bigger organizations, usually the more tools in-house. And somebody's got to make all that stuff work together.
1: And how do they typically go about that? I mean, it, it seems to me like uh, that's a lot of balls to have in the air at the same time
2: it is a lot of balls to have in the air at the same time and 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 what we hear time and time again is that some of the some of the time the complexity is so great that they'll only be using maybe 2 to 5% of that tool's capability so there's a lot of unused value from that tool and now you multiply that by 20 30 40 50 even 100 tools i mean that's a lot of that, that's a lot of expense for not a lot of value being brought back in, because in many cases, the tools don't actually talk to each other. The tools don't share information back and forth. Uh, a lot of times you have to go to one tool to get insights, and then you have to correlate those insights from another tool and take action on yet another tool. So there's several tools that have to be used in order to be able to take some sort of – and then you have to have somebody that knows how to use all of those tools and make heads or tails out of all of them as well. So it's a it's a patchwork of it's a patchwork of stuff for sure.
1: Is there a reticence to retire a tool that's been in service for a while? Is, are people afraid that you know if, if I get rid of this tool, then you know a breach happens where that tool may have been the thing that could have prevented it? Then I'm in a heap of trouble.
2: It's difficult to sunset a tool that you yourself were responsible for its initial purchase or procurement or rollout. It becomes a, a sensitive a sensitive topic, a sensitive subject because like wait a minute, I made the decision to spend whatever it was a hundred thousand half a million a million dollars on this tool or on these on this set of tools to be able to, improve the security posture of the organization, and it didn't quite work out. I mean, that's that's a hard pill for some people to swallow, so they'd kind of, in some cases, would rather deal with the complexity, you know, to try and save face. Um, you know, what we tend to find a lot, though, is that organizations that are in new leadership will kind of take that 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 inventory of saying, we have all of these tools, do we really need everything? And then they'll kind of you know take an honest look at the 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 tech stack of the organization and say yeah well we probably don't need everything so let's let's, let's make some decisions that, that are going to be best for for the organization for the long haul
1: is that really a a good way to come at this to establish some sort of cadence for taking a look and evaluating whether or not indeed you need all of the tools that you've signed up for
2: Nowadays, there's a lot of tools that have a lot of overlapping capability. And the hard part is trying to understand is what am I using this tool for? And is the use case that I have for this tool something that can be done with something else such that I can retire it? At the end of the day, what you know, organizations constantly have to evolve their security strategy, and as part of that, they 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 have to take an honest look at themselves and say, you know, is there something that we can look at, some sort of a, a of a of a framework we can look at of all the things that we use, of all the things that we need, of all the use cases we have out there, and then figure out is there something else within our arsenal, or do, should we start looking at an investment in something that maybe allows us to be able to retire? A large portion of them. So many of the CISOs that we talk to nowadays have goals where in the next two to three years, they want to uh, reduce their their tech stack by, you know, in some cases, 50%, even as high as 80% of what we see, where they just want to have a handful of, of, of partners um, to be able to, to move forward with because they're trying to simplify their their organization and simplify uh, reduce complexity within their organization.
1: You know, along with that, I think a lot of folks have trouble uh, with their patching programs of, of trying to come up with a, a reasonable way to take care of patching in a reasonable amount of time, but still not introduce friction for their users. Do you have any thoughts with that? Absolutely. Well, that's
2: one of the, one of the insights that typically you get with a whole bunch of tools is saying, okay, we've got, you know, a vulnerability management program. We have a tool that we use to tell us what are the vulnerabilities that are that are out there? What are the critical ones that are out there? Which ones affect us that are out there? Because I think, I think we're up to like 20,000 vulnerabilities this year, something like that, some ridiculous number again. And you can't do all of them. So you need to have some context around which are the ones that are important to us as an organization to keep our security posture where it needs to be. And in many cases, the action, in most cases, the action item is, well, we have to do patching we have to patch this server we have to patch whatever it is uh, that we have out there and you have to be disciplined about ensuring that you're able to patch when you need to patch whether that's a recurring schedule where you do multiple patches as once or something that's critical that you have to do an out of cycle patch. But maintaining a strong, uh, a strong discipline patching program is, is one of the, the, I, what I call the b- basic blocking and tackling things that an organization can do to reduce the attack footprint of, of the organization. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do because in many cases, patching is just one of those things that tends to get deprioritized for more uh,
1: critical-type projects. That's Antonio Sanchez from Fortra. Microsoft's Anne Johnson is host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. And in today's episode, we get a segment of her conversation with Newper Davis about building secure tech from the start.
0: Today, I am joined by Newper Davis, Executive Vice President and Chief Information Security and Product Privacy Officer at Comcast. Newper is responsible for overseeing the full range of cybersecurity and product privacy functions for all Comcast cable businesses, including all products and services delivered to residential and business customers secure by design and and secure coding is such an important and overlooked and undervalued part of cybersecurity often. People don't talk about it, right? So knowing you have that background gives you such a unique perspective that others candidly don't
1: have.
3: It, It does. You know, I do find that having that background helps in so many other areas of security. If you sort of know, hey, this kind of action that you take as you're designing a system or as you're building a system, or as you're writing the code. These are the type of vulnerabilities and issues that can lead to. Then let's say you are confronted by a network vulnerability or a configuration vulnerability or some other, you you sort of like go back to that mind map and you kind of go, I sort of maybe know how this can happen. And knowing how something could possibly happen, I think gives you a better chance of being able to respond to it. I'm not saying you're right 100% of the time, you never are, but I think you have slightly better chance of knowing what might be the cause.
0: We can't go any further until we talk about data, artificial intelligence, and specifically generative AI and security. So what's your point of view? Nuper? how are you thinking about generative AI and security? What are some of the early use cases you're excited about? And what do you think this innovation is going to do for the industry?
3: So you've asked, you know, a question that is really near and dear. So we have, uh, in our um, security program, we have three North Stars. And, you know, North Stars, you know, I talked about our mission. North Stars are our kind of long-term view of success. And our very first one is build security in. And, you know, this is, again, biased. That's my background. That's what we started. And, you know, that program is, you know, in its seventh year and probably one of our most mature North Stars. Our second North Star is around the zero trust environment. You know, we're probably in about halfway through that journey. And then our third is around data. And, you know, we have struggled with this, as I think most security organizations do, because um, we have so much security data, you know, millions of sensors that are, you know, gathering all kinds of information about endpoints and network and um, identities and network devices. And, you know, we were really struggling on how do you make sense of all of that? And yes, you know, there are seams and there are other ways of, of analyzing it, but, you know, they're very expensive. You can't do long-term analysis with them. So we spent years building a security data fabric. And it's sort of changed the way we do security. I have to tell you, it's just, again, still learning, still growing. It's a journey, not a destination, but... What the fabric lets us do is we bring in information from all of these sensors, we enrich that with other enterprise and other intelligence, like, for example, organizational hierarchies, asset systems, um, authentication systems, badging systems, right? You you bring all of this data together with your security data, suddenly you can ask questions that you did dare to ask before. So we use that fabric for, for everything from like continuous controls compliance to machine learning models that will do behavioral analysis and detection and and, and everything in between.
1: That's Ann Johnson from the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast which you can find right here on the Cyberwire network speaking with Nooper Davis. That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at CyberWire at N2K.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Ervin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.